This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And while you're finding your place in God's Word, just want to commend you all and, and thank you uh, for your faithfulness. You know, it's unusual that we have uh, Sundays to fall on Christmas Day and, and New Year's Day. But, um, you know, I was so pleased last Sunday. We. Uh, we had had a packed house here on, new, on uh, Christmas Eve and saw a lot of new faces and, and uh, many of you are so faithful to invite friends to, to come. Um, but we had a packed house on Christmas Eve. As you know, a lot of churches did not have uh, worship on Sunday morning. We did. I'm glad we did. Uh, we never thought of not having it. Um, but uh, we had a great uh, group that was here um, last Sunday and today and I just uh, just appreciate your your faithfulness so much. We're going to focus today on just a this is a flat out New Year's message. Okay, this text is just I think perfect for getting us ready for something new. There are a lot of people who are sort of cynical about New Year's Day. That's just they say it's just another date on the calendar. Listen, I believe that as Christians we ought to seize every bit of common grace that God gives us in order to grow in Him. And if there are special days on the calendar like today, let's take advantage of it. This is a time as we face a new year to, to reorient ourselves and to reset our priorities and, and look forward to something new. And we need to embrace that as the people of God. And I think this text can, can help us to do that. We're going to talk about some inspiration for a new year. Let's look at Hebrews 12, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we pray that you would bless your word to our understanding and to our application today. We pray for growth in you and fruit that remains in our lives and in and through our church family in this new year. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So according to the website Statistic Brain, these were America's top ten New Year's resolutions. Number one, lose weight. Number two, get organized. Number three, spend less, save more. Number four, enjoy life to the fullest. Number five, stay fit and healthy. Number six, learn something new and exciting. Number seven, quit smoking. Number eight, help someone else achieve their dreams. 
Number nine, fall in love. And number ten, spend more time with family. And then the same website took the New Year's resolutions and they sort of put them together and categorized them into groups by percentages. So 47% of the New Year's resolutions were about self-improvement. 38% were weight-related. 34% were money-related. And 31% were relationship-related. But there was no mention whatsoever in this article about the one relationship and the only relationship that can truly lead to heart change and life change. And that's a relationship with God. There was no mention in this article of anything spiritual. There wasn't even a group of spiritually related resolutions. It was as if people of faith don't even exist let alone any mention of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. But I want to tell you, New Year's resolutions are great. I believe in them. I hope you have them. But in order to have the power to follow through, we need a resource greater than ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit of God Whatever our goals or resolutions are, we have to lean upon the power of the Holy Spirit in order for deep life change to occur. And the Spirit of God works through the Word of God. So let's look at His Word right now. What do we see here in this great text? Uh, First of all, we see in verse 1, that the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, therefore, and you've heard me say before, when you're reading your Bible and you come across the word therefore, you need to see what it's there for because the writer is cluing you into something. He's saying that what I'm getting ready to say, I'm saying in light of what I just said. So what has the writer of Hebrews just said prior to verse 1? He has given us this incredible 11th chapter of Hebrews, which is like the hall of faith. It's filled with heroes and heroines, men and women of faith from the Old Testament that made it through hard times, painful trials, They endured, they ran their race with endurance. Why? Because of their faith in God. Because they kept trusting God. And the book of Hebrews is written to a community of Christians that are going through hard times. Times of trial and tribulation and struggle. And and the writer of Hebrews wants them to be strengthened by looking at the example of these Old Testament saints who also faced hard times, but they were able to persevere, they were able to endure because they trusted God, because they continually looked in faith 
to God. And so he wants these, this community of hurting Christians to do the same. And he wants us to do the same. He wants you to do the same. This is why I just really encourage you to read the Bible through in a year, okay? You can do it in just a few minutes a day, and it'll change your life. And one of the reasons reading the Bible through in a year is so life-changing is because Hebrews, it's, it's, it's Hebrews 11 in the grand sweep. Because what you're going to see as you read through the Bible is you see story after story, person after person, and you come to understand that your challenges and your struggles are not unique, that, that men and women have gone through them before. There are people who have walked the, the path faithfully and run the race faithfully before you, and we're encouraged by their stories of faith and how God worked in, in their lives. And see, he tells us here that these faithful Christians who have run the race before us, he says that they're like a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that people of God that have gone on before us, that they're sort of hovering around now on the clouds and they're looking down at us? No. In fact, really, the, don't think clouds at all here, okay? The cloud of witnesses is, is a metaphor. It's, it's an image, and the image really is not that of clouds like we think of clouds. The image is of a stadium, all right? Just like some of us yesterday watched a, a college football game, or maybe two, and we saw packed stadiums of people. That's the image here. The cloud of witnesses is like people that are in the, uh, the stadium, and uh, they're, they're, uh, they're in the stands, and of course the, the athletes are down on the field. But we have to adjust our thinking here somewhat, because when we think of packed stadiums today, we think, that, we think of the people, the spectators, the people in the stands, as they're looking down at the athletes. But the image here is not that these, these people of faith that have gone before us are looking down at us. The image here is that we should be looking at them and looking at their example, looking at their lives of endurance, Enduring faith in God and, and being inspired by those lives. That's, that's the image here. And if you look at their lives, you're going to see the three principles that we're going to talk about today. All right? The first one is this. Rid yourself of all hindrances. Rid yourself of all hindrances hindrances. Let's look at what he says here again in verse 1. He says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, the image here is not only of athletes, but of a certain kind of athletes. It's runners. And when runners are preparing for a race, Okay, are they gonna are they gonna be wearing heavy boots 
during their race? Are they going to be carrying heavy weights? Are they going to be wearing clothing that's going to restrict them? Absolutely not. They are going to be as light and as aerodynamic as they can possibly be. They're not going to have anything that that puts that uh, forces them to carry weight or that hinders them in any way. And, and so he, he says here that applying that image to us, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And the translation here for 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 lay aside is. That's kind of a, that's too gentle, really, in, in a way. I mean, because the, the original here is really more of a, it's more of a violent word. It's like, throw off. Let us throw off every weight and the sin that encumbers us and, and hinders us. Throw it off. Deal ruthlessly with it. You don't want to deal gently with sin. You want to make war on it. You want to be ruthless and violent and throw it off. That's... That's the image here. These things, these hindrances, these, the, the sin that weighs us down no longer has any place in our lives as believers. Why? Because of who we are in Christ. And for a reminder of that, let's look at the sixth chapter of Romans. First of all, in verses 4 through 6, Paul says here, we were... Buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, baptism is great. We're going to have baptism next Sunday. If you need to be baptized, if you're a believer and you haven't yet experienced a believer's baptism by immersion, you need to obey the Lord this year. And you need to do that. Let us know this week. You want to be baptized next week? We'll sit down and talk about it. We'd love to do it. You need to follow through on that. Because baptism is a beautiful picture of what has happened to us. Right? We are united to a Savior who was what? He was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. What happens when people are baptized here in our church? They're lowered beneath the water. They're raised up. To walk in newness of life. Listen, there's a sense in what, in the the fact that what happened to Jesus happened to us. We are united to Him. We've been given a new life. Paul goes on to say here, verse 5, If we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Once we were, sin had us like puppets on a string. We were slaves to sin. No longer. No longer. So when it rears its ugly head, remind it that you're no longer a slave. Look at um, verses 11 through 14 of Romans 6. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, and members there is the parts of your body, okay? Do not present the parts of your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That's you as a believer, 
and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Right? Sin doesn't have dominion in our lives anymore. It has no place there. We're not enslaved to it anymore. And maybe you got a, a pet for Christmas. If you did, I hope it wasn't a pet like this guy. I was reading about this guy in Indiana named Joe Taft. And he, he got a tiger as a newborn and, and wanted to raise it as a pet. Now let me tell you something. God didn't purpose tigers to be pets. Okay? They are, wild, they are notoriously untamable, unpredictable. They're really cute and cuddly when they're newborns. And in a couple of years, they weigh several hundred pounds and they can rip to, shred and, to shreds and eat their owners. Okay? And this guy was trying to raise this tiger and he, had, he developed heart trouble and had to have a bypass a surgery. And so he, he comes home and he's recovering and he has this cage built in his house, but not for the tiger. For him, he has a cage, a steel cage built around his couch in his living area in the in, in his in his in, in his living room while the tiger is roaming and roaring around the house. Which leads to a very obvious question: Why would anyone do that? Why would you tolerate? a tiger in your house, why would you be reduced to a prisoner in your own home? Why would we tolerate sins that, in, that weigh us down and hinder us and enslave us? Especially when we don't have to anymore. We're not slaves anymore. Throw that junk off. Be ruthless with it. Rid yourself of all hindrances. And look again at what he says in verse 1. He says, let us also lay aside every, way, every weight. We have different issues in our lives, different sin issues. They're, they're unique to us. Um, we need to know what they are. We need to be aware of it. And whatever they are, we need to deal with, with them ruthlessly. Let us lay aside every weight, throw off every weight. Okay, rid yourself of all hindrances. All right, second, run. Run with perseverance. Again, let's look at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now this tells us not only that we're runners, but it tells us what kind of a race we're in. And it tells us that it's not a sprint. That it's a distance race. It's like a, a marathon. In the Greek, it says here that the, the race is, is an agona. It's a, an agony. So it's, it's a struggle. Like a marathon can be. Now, Brian Wilkerson uh, talks about running his first New York City Marathon. He says this, The first half of that race is a party. You're swept along by 28,000 runners, crowds lining the streets. You're touring the ethnic neighborhoods of Brooklyn and Queens. 
You feel like you could run forever. At mile 13, the party's over. At about mile 16 or 18, you hit the wall. You're absolutely miserable, physically and psychologically. You're busted. All you want to do is stop running. I remember passing one of the first aid stations. There were runners lying on cots, pale and gaunt, with IVs dripping into their arms. I thought to myself, those lucky dogs. (laughs) At that point, I began to despair. I imagined myself having to go home and tell everybody I didn't finish. Why did I ever sign up? What made me think I could do this? And that's when it hit me. One way or another, I had to get to Central Park. That's where my ride was. I had no car. I had no money. I would have to get there on my own two feet, so I might as well keep running. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Don't think about the next six miles. Just think about the next step. And if you can keep that up, keep putting one foot in front of the other. The miles pass. And when you cross the finish line, it feels like glory, even when you're in 10,044th place. Sometimes we feel like we've hit that wall. Don't quit. This race is about endurance. He says here in verse 1, let us run with endurance. The the emphasis is on finishing. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul here in 2 Timothy uses another athletic metaphor. And the image here is of the, the athlete uh, standing on the, um, the, the platform. And whereas today they give medals In the first century, they would give a a laurel wreath. And that's what he he means when he says a crown here, right? The crown was like the the wreath that they would would place there. And Paul says that that it's those who, who, who finish faithfully who run with endurance, who, who finish the race, who keep the faith, those are the ones that are going to receive the crown. There's a, a great business and leadership book called uh, Good to Great. And one of the stories that the author Jim Collins tells in this book is about a high school cross-country team. And this particular team had, had been a team that was a good team, They were annually like in the top 20 in the state, but they became a great team that annually competed for the state championship. And their coach said they did it by simplifying things to one focus, finishing strong. So they would put their coaches uh, at like the the. Uh, the two-mile mark, the races would be usually like 3.1 miles. And so with about a mile to go, the coaches would measure, but the measure was not so much about how fast their runners were going, but how many other runners they would pass in the last mile. The emphasis was on finishing strong. 
John Piper contrasts what he calls adrenal Christians and coronary Christians. <laughs> adrenal Christians, these are, these are Christians who burst out of the gate. It's like they think they're, they're in a marathon, but it's like they start out like they're in a sprint. And so they burst out and, you know, it's just, they're just a ball of fire. But after a while, what happened? Where are they? You don't see them anymore. Coronary Christians are, are like the heart, right? What, our heart just keeps steady, right? Steady, boom, boom, boom. And there's just, there's consistent faithfulness over the long haul. And listen, these are the people who, who really build up the body of Christ. Listen, when it comes, with coronary Christians, um, you know, they don't sort of just wake up and uh, decide on the spur of the moment, ah, you know, I think we'll go to church today. Nothing else is going on. We might as well go. No, no, like, unless they're out of town, violently ill, or super providentially hindered, they're in church. Right? They, it's, there's a consistency there in their lives. It's, it's that way with their giving. Coronary Christians don't just say from week to week, well, maybe we'll give, maybe we won't. No, they've kind of like planned to do that. They've, they, they give systematically. And at least the first 10% of what they have is not even up for discussion or debate. You know, this is... Uh, God, I'm a steward. Everything I have is from the Lord. And I'm going to give that first part back to him. I mean, that is just done. It's consistent. They do it for years and years and years. And it's transformational. I would encourage you as you look forward to a new year, you let God start to manage your finances and see what happens. Start being a faithful steward. See what God can do with your finances. I challenge you. Coronary Christians are willing to serve, and when they serve in the church, they show up. They don't bail out. You can count on them. They're going to do what they do as unto the Lord, and they're faithful. Now look, the heart, they're like a heartbeat. Our heart is something that we, we kind of take it for granted, right? I mean, it's just there, um, and it's in the background, can't see it, but it, it's just that thing that just keeps boom, 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 steady all along. There are times when we need a burst of adrenaline. Adrenaline can be our friend, but adrenaline doesn't mean much if that heart's not beating. Okay? The heart is all, it's not seen, but it's that, that consistent thing that keeps us alive. Right, That's what we need to strive to be. It, Christians who are faithful, enduring, consistently faithful over the long haul. That's what the writer of Hebrews is, is talking about here. There's that steadiness, all right? Endurance. Run with perseverance, all right? Rid yourself of all distractions. Second, run with endurance. Third, rivet your focus on Christ. Look at verse 2. He says we're to be looking to Jesus. 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, we look to the example of faithful brothers and sisters who have run the race before us, but look, you know what made their lives what they were? They were looking to Jesus. And so we look to Men and women that have gone before us who were faithful, not to look to them as an ending point, but we look at their lives because their lives help us look to Jesus. We look to him because he says here that he's run the race before us. He's, he's gone before us and everything that we face in life, everything Every trial, every temptation. Listen, Jesus, God became a human being. That's what we just celebrated Christmas. God became a human being, and he's run the race faithfully. And everything that we can face, listen, it's already converged on Jesus. All of our, all of our sins, all of our sorrows, everything dark in the world converged on Jesus. On that cross, he's carried our sins and our sorrows and he rose from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of God and we can look to him. He's the pioneer that has already gone before us and he's the perfecter of our faith who's not going to let us go but is going to carry it on to completion. I like the way the NIV translates uh, verse 2. It translates it here as fixing our eyes on Jesus. Australian New Testament scholar Peter T. O'Brien, in his excellent commentary on Hebrews, says this about that phrase, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author's appeal calls for concentrated attention that turns away from all distractions with eyes only for Jesus. The verb rendered fixing our eyes on comes to be used as the English look to in the sense of relying upon or looking to someone for support or inspiration. For both author and listeners, that source of help and inspiration is Jesus. And notice here that as O'Brien says, part of looking to Jesus it includes a turning away from things that distract us. That's part of, of the self-denial that Jesus calls us to. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship wisely says this about that denying of oneself. He says to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self, to see only him who goes before and no more of the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, he leads the way, keep close to him. You see, our tendency, as Bonhoeffer says here, is to focus on the road before us, which is, seems overwhelming at times. <laughs> it seems too hard for us. 
our tendency is to focus on that road, just kind of like Peter took his eyes off Jesus and focused on the wind and the waves and began to sink. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And listen, fixing your eyes on Jesus is critical in throwing off the weight of sin. So there are patterns of sin in your life and you don't want them there anymore and you want to throw them off this year. Part of doing that, a huge part of doing that is not only turning away from those things, but in the same motion, turning to Jesus and being captivated by Him. Because it's that power of a greater affection that sort of drives out sin. The more that we focus on Christ, the more that sin loses its appeal. It doesn't seem so alluring anymore when we're captivated by Christ. So look to Him. And when we hear the words, when we think of a siren, we think of ambulance, a fire truck, police car. But the word siren comes from Greek mythology where it meant something very different. In Greek mythology, the, the sirens were a, a beautiful uh, group of mermaids on, on an island. And whenever sailors would sail past this island, these, these beautiful sirens would sing so beautifully, so alluringly, that sailors would hurl themselves out of their ships and try to, try to swim to the island only to impale themselves on the rocks around the island. They were jumping to their deaths. Well, there was a particular... Uh, sailor Odysseus who was going to be going past the island of the sirens and so he told the other sailors he said I want you to put wax in your ears so that you can't hear their song and you won't jump in but I want to hear their song and so I want you you to tie me to the mast of the ship so I can hear their song but I, I won't jump in the water and kill myself and so they they did that and Odysseus could not jump in, but that he was tortured by the song of these sirens. And he, his, he was eaten up with desire and just went mad uh, because of that. But there was another sailor named Jason. And Jason knew that he was going to have to sail past the island of the sirens. And so he asked his friend Orpheus to come with him. And Orpheus was an incredibly gifted musician. And he could play the harp in a way that was absolutely sublime and heavenly. And so when they passed by the island of the sirens and the sirens began to, to sing, Jason's friend Orpheus began to play just the most beautiful music. And Jason was so captivated by the beautiful music that his friend was playing that he didn't even hear the siren song. That's what happens. The, the more that we focus on Christ, 
the more that His beautiful music begins to play in our souls, the more that we dig into the Word of God and we see more of who God is, more of who Jesus is, and we are captivated by Him and His beauty and God's promises for us. Listen, sin is just exposed to be as gross as it really is. And it doesn't seem attractive anymore. It seems just gross and, you know, it's not alluring. It loses its appeal. That happens as we focus on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Be captivated by Jesus in 2017. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your word. We pray for a focus on the Savior this year. We pray that you would enthrall us and entrance us with who you are, what your promises are for us, who Jesus is, what the gospel is, and that we'll want to savor that more and more and share that more and more. And Father, I pray for anyone here today who needs a new beginning by experiencing the new life that Jesus gives. Lord, give them the grace to turn away from self and from sin and turn to the Savior. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. If you're here today, God's speaking to you about new life. Listen, the door's open. The door's open for you. Jesus died for sinners just like you and me. He rose from the dead so that we can have new life. Turn from sin. Turn from self. Turn to the Savior today. As we stand and sing in just a moment, I'm going to be right here at the front. Jesus tells us when we decide to follow Him, let other people know about it. You come. As a, as a, as a new believer, or maybe as a believer, you've known Christ for some time, you've never been baptized as a believer, you need to make that stand right here. Let me know. I want, to be, I want to follow Christ. I want to be baptized as a believer. You come today. If you're here today, God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family. Or just you need prayer for a need in your life. Our altar is open to you. We're here to pray with you. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as His beloved child. 
his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.